Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Not everyone can make it onto the New Yorker's 20 under 40 list. In fact, hardly anyone does. This panel of writers hit their literary stride later in life and did so with style. Listen as Stephen Wingate, David Rothman, and Gary Schombacher talk about what it took to get there and what happened once they did. Hi, everybody. Uh, we are Steve Wingate, Gary Schombacher, and David Rothman. You may know some of us. You may not know others of us. But we are collectively the late bloomers club here at lighthouse salon um so uh tonight's salon is uh well i i kind of refer to it in my mind as the geezers club hey what's Uh, that (laughs) but the the idea of it is i didn't get to vote on that no yeah (laughs) the idea of it is um not every writer comes into the world of the literary world fully formed at the age of 29 with a freshly minted MFA and a superstar agent and a book and a really glamorous, youthful picture for the back of the book jacket. <laughs> you know, it's, real, it's easy to market those kind of people because you think, hey, if this person takes off, we're going to make money off of them for the next 50 years. <laughs> but not, everybody is, not everybody's trajectory is like that. Flowers bloom when they bloom. And you also have to figure out a way to keep writing, if writing is what you love, if you don't become a star. Uh, so the, the people in this group, I, I believe all three of us had our first books come out after the age of 40. And, yeah, yeah. And as, as some of you may know, the, the cutoff... Uh, 70. Sorry. Uh, and as you may know, those of you who are poets uh, might know that the uh, cutoff date for the Yale Younger Poets award is 40 so it's sort of they're very clear over at Yale it's like all right if if you're over 40 you're you're no longer young but still life goes on and people have the beginnings of uh, of wonderful writing lives and writing careers and I I make a distinction between those two things uh well after they have turned 40 and they are no longer young enough to be Yale younger poets uh, a couple of people uh, that come immediately to mind uh, for me are uh, Ben Fountain, who was, I think, 46 when his first uh, – maybe 48 when his first novel came out, or first collection of short stories came out. Uh, Brief Encounters with Che Guevara, uh, had a wonderful splash, uh, did a great novel recently, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. He is the subject of an article by Malcolm Gladwell that appeared in The New Yorker a few years back uh, about – this very subject. And another person who you may remember uh, last year, Robin Black, was here uh, at Lighthouse. Uh, another person who, uh, who uh, just had a, a really good collection of short stories. Her, her new novel is just out. Uh, and um, she is another kind of person who kept at it and just did what she wanted to do and wrote what she wanted to write. And eventually things moved. And I think we've all, in one way or another... Uh, had that kind of experience behind every instant success rock and roll band you know most of those people didn't start uh, in their garage the week before their big hit came out and uh, i don't think that any of us uh, started the week before either we, we've been writing for a really long time uh, in the malcolm gladwell article um the end, end of the introduction about uh, ben fountain said that uh, he'd been working uh, 18 years since he quit his job as a lawyer uh, before his first book was was bought, so that uh, they, the main uh, takeaway from that is have a supportive spouse with a full time <laughs> job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just learn to rob banks or something like that, uh, and do things like that. So, I, I we um, we wanted since this is a salon, we're hoping that you will shout out questions as necessary. Uh, I came up. Uh, I'm an over preparer, so I came up with a million questions, and maybe we'll we'll just. Uh, what I'd like to do is to start uh, just by describing well, what that uh, what that time in the garage was like for each of us uh, before. Huh? Andrea had her hand up already. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, I already introduced them. Do I have to say it again? Yeah. David. David J. Rothman. David, you give want, us your story. Yes, we're going <coughs> to... 
It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> a story. You want a story? I am Sam. Sam. No, I. The uh, 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 I've been teaching here for a long time. I also teach at CU Boulder. Uh, I'm I have run the poetry concentration at Western State Colorado University. On July 1st, I become the director of their MFA. I've published seven or eight books, which which is bittersweet because it means I won't be able to teach here as much. Um, I co-founded and ran the Crested Butte Music Festival. I've been the headmaster of a boarding school. I founded Conundrum Press. I uh, I just <laughs> I just got out of prison. Uh, I, um, and I'm happy to be here. Well, we'll come to that, I guess. Coffee, but beyond that. <clears throat> and Gary Schonbacher. Um, yeah, I I guess I take umbrage at late bloomer. I I consider myself a late starter. I mm. I, I mean honestly, I how's the sound check by the way? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I'll talk into it. No, still not. Maybe it's just not. Is it on now? No. Is it on? Okay. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't uh, one of those people that wrote their first novel at eight and kept at it. I really had no idea about being a writer until until middle age. I'd gone to school at a small uh, liberal arts school, so I had an appreciation for the arts. And then, you know, when I got to my late 30s, early 40s, I think as we all do, I started looking for a creative outlet and realized fairly quickly that I didn't have one. I can't draw a stick figure. I... I I have the same four chords on a guitar for 20 years, literally. C, D, G, A, E, F gives me problems. And it wouldn't help anyways because I can't tune it. I'm tone deaf. Um, And you know how some guys are supposed to be mechanical? Like every time I – my only outlet for working on my car would be to open my wallet and pay someone um, (laughs) because it always ended up being less expensive – but I found I found in my work life after a certain uh, after I was kind of slotted in um, I studied economics academically and and um, I found uh, when my work life kind of settled and I saw the the path that I um, was most I didn't like management I, I didn't like being in charge of people I liked I didn't like working with people I didn't like collaboration. <laughs> I, <laughs> It's a wonder I kept in my job as long as I did. No, but what I found is that I worked best when I was giving an assignment and I got to go sit off and figure through mm-hmm. issues and uh, solve problems and write about my results. And so that kind of turned towards an interest in creative writing. And I found that you know just every once in a while I'd string together a sentence or two that, that gave me pleasure and, and I guess again that's like in my late 30s early 40s and, and I'm a, uh, one of the growing growing you know, walls full of poster childs of Lighthouse I learned craft the creative writing craft here at Lighthouse um, um, and, and I approached it fairly objectively and we can talk about this more uh, uh, it took me 10 years to get from studying economics as an undergraduate to writing my dissertation. So I thought there's no reason to believe that it should take me any less than 10 years to try to learn the writing craft. And so I set out with that in mind, realizing after about year eight that the difference being is that I finished my dissertation and it got put away and no one other than my mother ever looked at it. Whereas at the end of the 10-year apprenticeship as a writer, hopefully you produce something that someone has at least a mild interest in, in reading. You know? So that, in a way, it's, it was more difficult. But, but that's how I, how I started and we can kick that around more. And that use of the term apprenticeship I think is really apropos. I mean, there's an apprenticeship to your craft – that's that's just part of it, and I think this is this is kind of uh, maybe a very nineteenth century idea, but perhaps an, uh, an idea that uh, should not be so easily uh, moved away. Uh, my own story is uh, I'm the kid who always knew he wanted to be a writer and never knew exactly what. I cycled through just about every writerly identity there could possibly be: poet, fiction writer, screenwriter, dramatist, avant-gardist. This, this, that, this, uh, and I, I never really could figure it out. And it took me 
till I was at least 40 before I realized that this was a completely artificial decision and one that I did not have to make. And what I needed to do was actually stop thinking about my career and thinking about, well, what am I going to uh, devote myself to that is my concentration and my discipline? I had to stop thinking about that and just write what I wanted to write and not give a darn. And I think that for me, I had to be too old to be a Yale younger poet before I could actually see the light of day and realize it's about the work that you create and it's not about the, the path or trajectory that you try to forge for yourself. Uh, so for me, uh, that uh, kind of happened about the same time as uh, becoming a father. So subtle pitch or none too subtle pitch for next Monday's salon uh, about uh, 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 to parents or not, kidding or not. Uh, but that uh, for me, that was in my early 40s was when I, I finally realized, hey, wait a minute. I am too old to be a wunderkind. I am unlikely to have a career that is going to put me on the cover of Poets and Writers as the next big blank. So what do I do? Well, write what I want to write and see where things go from there. And that, this was a, a very a, a wonderful loosening uh, type of thing. Um, I want to ask uh, our, our panel, and again, feel free to jump in there with any questions at any point. Uh, I'm wondering what the, uh, what the go-for-it moment was for both of you. Uh, you had a, you've had a very long life in the arts uh, and a very productive... <laughs> A very productive, Fuck some, you. Uh, <laughs> a productive and sometimes scandalous life in the arts. Uh, what was the moment where you? I mean, a lot of your artistic life uh, uh, has has gone toward, uh, for instance, founding the press and uh, the music festival, and you you've done fundraising and things like that. Was there a moment at which you said, you know what, I'm going to put my writing first, and I I am going to make that the main thrust. Uh, of what I do, did you did you have a moment like that? And if so, what was it like? I've had an odd life. I just want to point out that first of all, that I think it's a little unreasonable put, to put the tallest guy on a podium on the tallest chair. I was going to say the same I, thing. I feel like I, I represent. I, 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 I feel like I represent the lollipop league here. You know, I mean, I mean, it's like it's like sitting next to that. Yeah, you know. No, no, it's it's it's. I'm just trying to get a laugh. I succeeded. I, uh, I've had an odd life. Uh, I, I, I vividly remember being shown the alphabet. It was actually the International Phonetic Alphabet, or something called IPA, which was more phonetic than typical English spelling. Can you guys hear me? Is this loud enough? Okay. When I was five years old, and I remember what I wrote, uh, because I didn't need, I suddenly realized that you could use these things to write sentences. So I wrote a three-sentence story called Pete that goes, um, one day Pete went for a walk. Pete found a lost dog. Pete took the dog home. Thank, thank you. <laughs> um, and um, I never, I mean, I had many, many other interests, but um, I never really wanted to do anything else as intensely as I wanted to write. And it simply became more intense and got ramified over time. And there were a number of number of moments that that happened, although I'd say the moments of deepest commitment came when I was probably 18 years old. Mm. <clears throat> um, and, and, you know, and, and that was a fairly complicated passage. But and that was the moment at which I decided what I really wanted to do most was to write verse. Mm. Uh, and I had this... I was very fortunate, and I had uh, a superb education. I, I went through um, Harvard at a time when many of the best poets in the world were there. And as an undergraduate, I got to study, and this is in one four-year undergraduate degree. I got to take courses with Cheslaw Miwash during the year that he won the Nobel, Seamus Heaney, <laughs> Derek Walcott, wow. Mark Strand, and Robert Fitzgerald all in the course of about three years. Um, so the bar was set rather high. And there were others as well. They were not actually my most important teachers. My most important teacher was the high school teacher, Roseanne Soffer, to whom I dedicated uh, one of my books of poems, who came into our honors English class um, and said, my name is Roseanne Soffer. You spell that suffer with an O. <laughs> and who made us read a book a week 
at least every week of the year, and that was for, and those were books like Hamlet and Moby Dick. I think we got two weeks on Moby Dick. Um, so I was very, very fortunate with my teachers, both there and in music. And um, but it's all I ever, I ever really wanted to do from a relatively early age, and I just kept doing it. What I realized, however, was that um, in the academic world, you know, at a certain point, you come up against the problems of uh, language and literature. And I did do a PhD in English at uh, NYU, where I also got to study with great teachers, Harold Bloom, Dennis Donahue, people like that. And um, I wrote about prosody because I thought it would be the most interesting thing to write about in terms of my craft. And that's about like saying, showing up at a party and saying, hey, I was, I've got leprosy, want to dance. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it didn't work out very well in terms of jobs. So, so at a certain point, um, I simply had to put my head down and, and do what I believed in. And, and there were a number of aha moments along those lines where it was simply, well, you know, you have to keep going. It's very, very hard. You really deeply have to believe in what you're doing. Um, and this is sort of a come to Jesus moment. I, I think the way I can be of most use to you is to say, well, there are some people who are very successful early on, but if you look at the list of Pulitzer Prize winners or Yale Younger Poets or, for that matter, Colorado Poet Laureates, we have a very good one right now, and we've had, we've had others who are good, but a number of them are forgotten. Who won, the, who won the Pulitzer Prize in 1974? You know, nobody knows. Nobody can remember. It doesn't matter. Um, and look at the people who didn't win it. Robinson Jeffers never won a prize. I'd say... Uh, you really, you really deeply have to believe in what you're doing. Um, and, and especially if you're writing poetry and criticism and things like that, you're, you're never going to make, you're highly unlikely ever to make, make money at it. You have to choose it as a way to, uh, to live your life because it's not, like, it's not necessarily going to come to you in any other meaningful way. But we'll come back to this. We have a lot of questions to ask. That's where I'd, that's where I'd start. My aha moments, there were a series of them, but they were always in the context of a uh, lifelong commitment from a very, very, very early age. Hmm. It's a, it certainly is a long distance. And I published run. my first book when I was thirty-eight. Okay, 38. so oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, maybe Still, thirty-nine. You were close enough to you could have been a Yale younger poet. Yeah, my hairline was receding. <laughs> Gary, did you have an, an aha moment? Yeah, kind. Of, I had a couple actually. One is I wrote a story very similar to David's. Um, almost line for line, um, I was 39 at the time. Um, <laughs> plagiarist. Yeah, yeah. So, um, because I guess I'm the anomaly here, I didn't come to writing until later. Um, and, and so uh, I set my mind to it. I, I was working full time, and I know I'm probably most of you out there have done the same thing you set your alarm clock for 4 30 you write for a couple hours before work fit in a couple hours afterwards maybe the weekends but after a while sound familiar what um no <laughs> no 4 30s um in 1995 i won a, uh the denver women's press club used to run a a, a story contest short story contest i i had uh entered the year before because for 10 bucks uh not only did where you entered this contest that i think paid 125 bucks but um you got written comments back unlike a lot of contests so you actually got some kind of little critique and the year prior they wrote back and said this this was some interesting writing considered writing non-fiction this reads much more like a report than a story than fiction so i took that as a little challenge and the <laughs> next year i i uh, the next year, I, w- I won the contest. It was in 1995, and I and, remember, and that's a great prize. That's a serious prize. Yeah, 125 bucks. It is. Um, um, the lady called, and I remember. I specifically remember. I was at work, and she said, "You know, you've won." And she said, "You know, you, we were really surprised because it was a blind reading. We were really surprised uh, when we." saw that it was you that won because all of the judges were absolutely convinced a woman wrote this story. And I mm. said, cool. I said, I'm comfortable with my feminine side. And so I thought, you know, if I can pull off that kind of voice in the story, then um, then I'm on my way. And uh, so it's all, all downhill from here, right? So 
let's see, my first actual published story came six years later. So, uh, uh, and, and, but that one little bit of, of uh, validation uh, really helped me not coming from a back, writing background, not coming from, from a writing program other than workshop, uh, trained in, a, in economics and statistics. <clears throat> so that was my, I, that was an aha moment. And then, and then uh, the Colorado Review took one of my stories mm-hmm. and then I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. And, and I was kidding about it before, but it sure does help to have a supportive family mm-hmm. behind mm-hmm. you when you do that. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of what's my I, one of my I, I'm a lot like David uh, that I've had a, a series of running aha moments, and sometimes they're ha ha moments when things don't work out quite like I thought they would. Uh, but there's been some uh, ahas to go as well, and the one that I'm thinking of most clearly now that relates to having a supportive family was uh, I think it was around 2005. Um, first son had been born, and I said. Uh, <coughs> I, we got tax money back, so I, I said uh, to my wife, I, I don't want to use this money for uh, going on trips or anything. I, I want to use this to to start sending off to competitions. And I know the co- feelings about competitions really vary, uh, but that was, that was a moment of uh, commitment when I said, you know, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to stop sitting around saying, well, you know, I could have been a contender, and, I, and I'm actually going to – Instead gonna, of what I am. Which is a bum, a bum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, and I'm just gonna put. I'm just gonna actually put my money where my mouth is, and and see you know whether all these delusions and dreams that I've had actually have any kind of weight uh, and substance. So it, it's not so much getting the prizes was the aha, aha moment as deciding that I'm gonna start sending this stuff out. To see to see whether there's any legitimacy to these to these thoughts that I have, and which was scary as heck, because if they, everything had come back, no, 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 uh, I don't know what I would have done. I mean, I w- I'm sure I would have kept on in some way, but uh, it it would have. I don't quite know what that alternate history would have been like. Um, let's see. Can I move on to the next question? Yeah, Carrie. We hit on our spouses too, <laughs> and hit on each other. <laughs> that's that's exciting. <laughs> I'm not quite that modern. Uh, personally, I, I've been in the situation. Uh, I, I've always I've had to be the the prime uh, breadwinner. Uh, so I, I think the the support that I get, uh, I don't have Ben Fountain's lawyer spouse who's making the money. Uh, I, I don't have someone in, in corporate in the corporate world. What I what I do have is a spouse who's willing to give me uh, the time that I need to carve out, and that is that is absolutely gold. Uh, because if I get my writing time in the morning, you could poke me with sticks the entire rest of the day, and things will usually be okay. Uh, without that, uh, I, I don't I don't think I would be up here talking. Uh, so that to me was the, the most important. Uh, support that that my wife can give is is that you know the luxury of that time and understanding that this was time that I needed and time that actually might you know be a, actually an investment. I think the really complicating issue is the issue of children, you know, which makes a which is very time consuming, obviously, and it's a big choice in life. My wife and I have supported each other back and forth at different times in our lives, and our parents have supported us in helping us, you know, trying to get um, by, you know. Like buy a home, for example, when we started, uh, it certainly is important. But there are all sorts of lifestyle choices to be made and personal choices. And do you want to have children or not? Um, what kind of a life do you want to lead? Uh, but my wife has been very supportive of my work at times when you know there were complicated things in my life, um, and it's been absolutely essential. Just as I've tried to be for her at other times. Yeah, I. You know, there's that old cliched, you know, 10,000-hour rule where to get good at anything, you have to be willing to put in 10,000 hours of practice. And, you know, I don't necessarily buy into generalities, but when you decide to take writing seriously, there's no getting around the fact that you got to 
be willing to sit down uh, on a regular basis for hours on time, uh, especially during the especially during the skill acquisition phase, mm. that journeyman phase. Mm. I mean, mm. you know, I, I saw an interview with the Annie Pruel the, a year or so back, and someone said, "You know, how often do you write?" And she said, "I never write." She said, "I'm always." got something to do but when i do sit down to write i write very quickly well this is annie pearl talking at 70 years of age she was writing under a uh, a pen name for sports illustrated in the 1960s so this is someone that's put in mm-hmm. uh her 10,000 hours plus so um when you do hear about certain successful writers that say, you know, I don't get much of a chance to, so I make the best of it. Don't believe all of that. I mean, mm. at, for me, mm. while we'll still still will never be as good as some, it still requires finding the time, and that's where family support really comes in. Where where you hear the vacuum cleaner going <laughs> and the clothes being washed, and you still are allowed to be in the room with the door shut working at your at the computer mm-hmm. the best uh, writing investment i've ever made is a pair of 300 dollars bose noise reducing headphones <laughs> yeah. by far the smartest thing i've ever done for myself as a writer I, I would say writing does take place in communities and writers are individuals but uh you need friends who are trustworthy editors you need mm-hmm. uh family you need you need um all sorts of kinds of relations. You need a community like this. Uh, I think most people do. Most people do not live like Emily Dickinson. Mm. And, um, mm. and uh, so most people do need some kind of a support network of some kind. The spouse often being the most important. Any other questions before I, before I uh, bring it back to the next question on the list? Would you talk yeah. more about your support groups? Mm. Well, this this is an interesting question, it's, and it was something that's occurring to me. It's something that I've taken to saying at gatherings like this. The first comment I wanted to make actually was something that came up earlier, which is just that in terms of late bloomers, especially among poets, Wallace Stevens, I don't mm. think he published his first book till he was in his 40s. Mm. Robert Frost, late 30s. Shakespeare published his plays long after he was dead. <laughs> you know, I mean... Uh, <laughs> So, you know, I mean, talk about being a late bloomer. I mean, that, that's flowers coming out of the grave. You know, I, I won't forget to put roses on your grave. Kind of and um, for that matter, many people have published while they were alive and yet uh, didn't really receive the credit they deserve. And we know many like this. There are some in Colorado, notably Belle Turnbull. I'm working. I'm going to make famous mm-hmm. as, as she deserves to be. But uh, I'm going to do my best at any rate. But... Um, in terms of those support groups, you know, I, lo- I look out at this audience, and of course, people come to things like this because they have needs. <laughs> I, know I know you have needs. <laughs> and, and, um, and most people here, you know, I, I'm looking at you, and you're all, you know, sort of, let's say, of, of a certain age, you know. Not all of you, but. And, and, and you know, everybody wants to publish, and everybody wants to do well. And my response on that, and it's a very legitimate question, and I'm going to give you a kind of a challenging and provocative response is, uh, and this is particularly true in the case of poetry. How many of you are interested in poetry? I mean, oh, almost three. The, uh, <laughs> but no, really. Uh, you know, I would say ask not what literature or writing can do for you, but what you can do for writing. You make your support group. And, you know, the, there's no better example than what's going on right here, right now, 20 years ago, this did not exist, and it's a product of the vision of, uh, I can't remember their names. Uh, um, oh, uh, yeah, Mike and Andrea. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, who are, to whom I'm deeply grateful. They created this. Um, but if you look at the lives of most people, and I don't know exactly what um, Steve is involved in right now. I mean, he is, uh, as far as I know, the tallest ex-hockey player with braces from West Boulder County. But other than that, I have to say that in every time we read together. That felt good. But really, I mean, if you look at what the poets do, especially because they can't make any money, I mean, they, you know, you start presses, you edit, you mm-hmm. teach, you um, consult, you serve on boards, you 
you uh, you mentor you 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 start magazines you start publishing houses you edit magazines I've done all of these things um, and you create it you you reach out and you create it and if you want to get involved you get to a certain point and this has really only been happening to me frankly within nice hog in the, in the last few years is that I don't have to worry about it anymore because I've created a network mm. of people who you know they we know each other and if they want a book review or if they uh, if they are looking for something we talk and it happens that's how I wound up being poet in residence at Colorado Public Radio and now they come to me and say we want a poem for the opening of baseball season and I say when and they say you've got 48 hours <laughs> I'm the only guy who writes poetry on deadline for money in America mm. but I would say aside from uh, the obvious things you know spouse friends you know sometimes perhaps your accountant if you get along well but that's a joke. It's a bad joke. But I would say make your community get involved and serve. Mm. Uh, go to parties, hang out, sleep around, the works. And it's, you'd be amazed what can happen. The, the <laughs> and uh, no, but I'm really quite serious. Uh, just protect yourself. But the, 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 but make your community. Make your community. Find the people. And if you do that, you will, you will find them. And, and, and I believe that works very, very well. And, it will, and, it, and before you know it, you know, random house, three book contract, <laughs> it works. Pulitzer Prize. I, I think that uh, if, I, if I may jump in, um, I talked earlier about uh, hopping around from one career path as a writer to another. And I think that really – uh, what David's saying about uh, finding your community, uh, there's a, a definite line for me uh, between the era in which I tried to join communities that already existed to get in with this group uh, versus saying, you know, I am where I am and I know who I know and let's try to do something together. Uh, and that was a very... He started a great magazine. A great magazine. What? Divide. Oh, that was nice. Yeah, he it's, doesn't, it's he doesn't even now. remember. This is what happens when you get older. They're, they're all dead. They it's all dead die. now. It's dead now. Uh, but the, that was that was a, a real dividing line, a real Rubicon to cross to say, well, I'm not going to try to get in with these people in L.A. when I was living in L.A. And I'm not going to try to get in with these people in Boston when I'm living in Boston. I'm just going to go with the people who I know and let's see what we can make happen. And I, I – see three distinct support groups that I think we all need. One is the um, craft developing uh, support group like the workshop. Like the workshop. Um, What we do right here where you go into a room with ten people and a facilitator and instructor and and work on your craft and sift through how that group can help you and, and by that I mean usually you'll go into a workshop and if you can find three or four out of ten people you resonate with then that's a very successful mm-hmm. workshop second group is just supportive friends and family that those are the people that encourage you to keep writing regardless uh, you know you can write the biggest pile of hokey in the world and they say great job keep going you need those people just don't believe those people and then your family is so much nicer than mine and then and then the third group is a group that uh, jennifer egan talked about when she was here she's had a group for with uh, for 20 years of of uh who trade their work back and forth and that's the honest critique group she says she doesn't on purpose they don't necessarily socialize they're not best of friends because that's not their purpose their purpose is to honestly read one another's work not to say not with the idea of saying oh you need to fix this chapter or or rephrase this or no this guy shouldn't die and he should they're there to read the work and say these sections resonate with me these sections don't and then it's up to you as the writer to figure out why that is and how to fix it but you need all three. Yeah, I mean, you need that honest group. You also need someone to pat you on the back, regardless. Hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering if you each would speak to how loss has impacted your development as a writer. You go first, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm the idiot who cooked this whole thing up. Uh, loss. Well, what kind of loss are you thinking of? Loss of jobs, loss of family members, loss of self-esteem. Yeah, that could be <laughs> any of the um, I mean, normally you think of someone, but I don't think. Oh, 
I think uh, losing things is uh, th- there's a anybody anybody do Tai Chi? Um, uh, ben Lo, uh, the phrase in uh, actually no, this is Chen Manching. Invest in loss. You are going to lose. There will be there will be many books. You will not get the the three. You will not get many three book contracts from Random House that other people are getting. Better to invest in loss than to lose your investment. <laughs> yes, this is true. Uh, and to be able to let that. How can I explain this in the Tai Chi fashion? Um, you're just an acceptance that you are going to lose and that you are not uh, always going to emerge triumphant uh, is a very sanguine thing. It's it's humbling. It keeps you from being on your high horse too much. And uh, it, it, it allows you to develop a different kind, I think, of fuel uh, that you're working off of as a writer. Uh, when I was young, I, I worked off of very uh, uh, fast-burning fuels, coffee, uh, the the lust for fame. You know, these were all very fast-burning fuels that that cost a lot for me. They, they cost it cost a lot to operate off of those fuels. And as I've gotten older and and had more loss, more lost opportunities, more lost things that I wanted uh, what I've found is that I've had to work off of different kinds of energy in myself uh, am I being too abstract here and am I sounding like somebody who used to live in Boulder um, <laughs> I, I found that you know that that lost feeling that they're not Birkenstocks Gary they're, okay. they're, they're not Birkenstocks they look Birkenstock ish to me <laughs> Birkenstocks are illegal in the Dakotas <laughs> it's true but anyway, it's it, it just uh, my my approach to my writing craft. I think was altered significantly by the loss of the literary dreams that I had as a younger person, and I think has given me a much much more sustainable, to use that sustainability metaphor, energy source for myself as a writer. So less going out and trying to achieve the things out there, more. What's in here? What's the energy that's here that arises from myself? How do I write from there instead of writing from that position uh, of constantly grasping for something outside of myself? Uh, okay. Top that, guys. Uh, I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> uh, I was a headmaster of a private school for a number of years. And uh, one of the things I realized, I was told this when I was entering into this job. Quick, tie me to the mast. You get the hogs and the sirens. The sirens. Was uh, that uh, when you run schools for long enough, kids die. And you're going to have to deal with this. You're going to have to deal with um, the passing of children. And you're going to be the headmaster. And you're going to have to get up in front of an audience, in front of hundreds of people, children and their parents, and look at them. And they're going to look to you. And you're, and you're going to have to say something. And so I had one of the most powerful experiences of my life, rhetorically at any rate, um, when I had to do that on a number of occasions. It was difficult. And I, was a, I may have come to writing rather old, but I came to headmastering pretty young. It's funny because in that profession, you know, I was, at 38, I was the youngest headmaster in at any private school in Colorado at 38 I was an old writer uh, to be starting but um, what I learned there under tremendous pressure um, was that um, loss is always an effect and uh, the feeling of loss is always an effect not a cause and that um, the only reason one could call it a loss was because one had felt love first for the thing that one has lost so that feeling of loss, and it really doesn't matter what we're talking about, but presumably we're talking about something significant. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, you don't say, I lost my keys. I love them so much. Mm. Come on, that's funny. <laughs> but, you know, when someone passes away or a dream passes away or in some way or other, what one has to, if one is wise and thoughtful, I think that what happens is that and if one is mature enough, which does tend to come, perhaps, one would hope, a little bit 
if you're lucky, maybe, kind of, with age, is, uh, you know, a, a, a more seasoned sense of an understanding that that which one has lost, one loved. So the loss, even if it's very painful, and we've all had th- those moments of pain, if one can remember that it, uh, it relates to grief, and grief is something that writing in particular can address uh, more powerfully or as powerfully as anything in our experience, um, if one approaches it with appropriate level of respect and craft and a, a tempered maturity, um, I would say that uh, it can be pretty powerful. I, I discovered that I am a pretty good elegist. Um, it certainly does focus the attention when you're up in front of 200 people trying to explain why a beautiful 17-year-old boy died in a car wreck for no reason in the middle of the day. And you have to serve. It's a good lesson about why words really can make a difference in people's lives if you use them well. Um, no, I'm not going to follow that. No. <laughs> yes, Don't tell them how old you are. Don't that, that I mean, yeah. Short answer, seriously. They, I've I've never was asked. I mean, um, the that's and and trust me. I, I mean, we've been told this, and I'm sure you've heard it. When you submit a manuscript in in an eight, at least for the agents and agents interested, you'll be Googled. I mean, if you have any presence, then they'll be found out. But. But what I have found out um, uh, is that um, your work will be accepted um, on based on two criteria. Uh, first, probably and foremost, if an agent or publisher thinks they can make money with, off of it. And secondly, if an agent or editor really loves the work. And my second book... Maybe my first book to some extent, but I know for my second book, uh, the agent after selling the book or shopping the book for six or eight months, she realized she wasn't going to make money off this book. Um, uh, and she continued to sell it. And at, when she finally did sell it and we talked about advances and stuff, I kind of laughed and joked with her about um, you're not going to be in the business long if you're making advances, your commission off my advances. And, and she said, and, and uh, I'm so grateful that she said it because I'll always remember it. She said, no, we sell books uh, to make money, and then I also take on books because I love the book and it should be out there. And she worked for a year and a half to sell the book. She knew my age. She knew the prospects for the book. And um, so if you find the right outlet, I don't – I used to think age was a real issue, and I'm not sure it is. You know, I really think it depends on your audience. I mean, after all, if you're writing uh, um, books that would appeal to an, an older audience, depending on what they are, what's the problem? Um, and those, all, those, all demographics exist. It, it's a very complicated question. Yeah. I think age discrimination – uh, as such, is much worse in academia, for example, than it is in, in publishing. Uh, it is out there, but, um, you know, I mean, uh, I, I'm not, I don't, I, I haven't personally seen a lot of it, but then again, I, I don't work in the fiction world. Maybe it's somewhat different there, but after, I mean, there's fiction for. Um, Norman McLean published his first novel when he was, what, 72? Mm. He's noted as saying, you know, if I'd known I was that good at this, I would have started earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a, there's a British gentleman a few years ago, uh, last name Cedric, I believe, who yeah. published his first novel at the age of 72 as well. 72. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, there, there are definitely times um, when I've personally felt uh, ticked off at the young hipsters. And can we, you know, it, it's okay to feel that. Um, it's okay. Uh, and... Um, 
You know, sometimes I've sent, uh, I've gotten into these submission flurries. I'm like, I just got to send some stuff out. I'm tired of sitting on this. And I send it out to uh, someone indiscriminately, and I get rejection letters back from young hipsters who don't know where to put the apostrophe in the in their rejection letter. And and I'm uh, and then I realize, you know, why are you sending off sending your work off to magazines that are run by young hipsters who are young enough to be your children, and then some. Uh, Wait, your children are what? Six and eight. Come on. Yeah. Well, I I started late. Uh, I, it's a, uh, there may be some others out there. No, there are no others out there. Um, but they, um, I think that if you're worried about age discrimination, I think the first, the best thing you can do for yourself is to not send those uh, research the the venues that you're sending out to. And if it's you know blankety blank floppity flop press with some kind of weird funky name, and you look at the masthead online, and you see everybody looks like they're they haven't you know they're still like in their first year of graduate school, uh, and that you know they've been told, hey, you got to start a press to uh, to you know start your network. Uh, maybe that's not a really a press to be bothering with, uh, because I've had a very very low shooting percentage with those kinds of presses. I mean, just absurdly low. Um, and uh, I found that presses and magazines that are run by people who are a little older actually have been more amenable to my work because I'm not a hipster. I don't write about hipster topics. Um, classicist. Uh, there are there are venues for you. So I, th- I think the the best way to counteract that that age discrimination is to to study your venues. Mm-hmm. And make sure that you're not setting yourself up for frustration by sending out to the wrong types of places. How do you, how do you define success for yourselves as a writer? I mean, you had said before you were doing the grasping out from where you're sitting right now. That's a good question. Two words Daimler Benz. <laughs> no. Anybody want to take that? That that that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I because, uh, yeah, I don't know that. Uh, at least personally, um, yeah, I certainly don't feel successful as a writer. I feel like I feel like I, I'm making progress, um, and I, I guess I'll be honest with you. I mean. The reality of it is, is an awful lot of good writers um, never get published. Never get published. So, the the I guess the first line is to write something that you can set, put away in a drawer for six months and pull out six months later and read it and say, for yourself, this is the best I can do. This is pretty good. I mean, I and I can do that with a story. And then every summer, I, I go to the beach and I reread Old Man in the Sea. Hmm. And every summer, I come away and say, "What? Why the hell am I writing?" You know. Um, but I can t- I can take I feel a, a measure of success when I feel myself making progress and when I'm happy um, with something I've produced. But I'll be completely honest with you too. I, I feel success when something gets accepted, when I see something in print, when I see something on the bookshelf, and and um, you know that's probably not the best attitude to have, but that's the honest one. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to sound uh, more. Uh, emotionally healthy than I am. (laughs) But I'm very clear about what success means for me. Uh, And I consider success to be the fact that I am um, living the way I want to live. I am living as a writer. I edit, I teach, I'm a publisher, I sit on the governing boards of organizations and help them to thrive, I teach, I, I write, obviously, I revise, some days are good, some days are not, um, there's more rejection than there is acceptance, uh, but there's plenty of acceptance, um, I make a little money, of course you need to make some money, but fame, fama, mm. 
that is an illusion. And I know many people who live for that and basically, you know, they wind up, the conversations with them get really dull. Hmm. It's a form of, you know, it's, it's like yeah. being in a locked ward at Bellevue with a bunch of pathological narcissists. <laughs> and it makes me sick. I'm not interested. I, I do this because I, as, as being as conscious as I can, this is the way I want to live. That's success. It's what Walter Pater says at the end of the Renaissance, you know, to burn always with this gem-like flame, this is success in life. You know, that's all you have is this stream of moments and you're only allotted so many. And um, if one only writes for something that isn't present in those moments, mm -hmm. um, well, I understand that. And of course, we all want to succeed in that way. If that becomes the goal, uh, if, that, if, if that gets out of balance, you're, gonna have a, you're not going to be happy no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. um, I know people are publishing books uh, with major presses and winning big prizes and you know what? Their, their narcissism still makes them jerks. And they whine like you wouldn't you know, believe. And they, yeah, and they whine and they whine and they whine. Success is, uh, the, I mean, Walter Pater said it as well as anybody could, frankly, on um, that final chapter of the Renaissance. The success of li in life is to, is to do your best to enjoy as much as you can of, of the way you have chosen to live. And there is a, some level of choice. One could go off and do something else. Um, but this is not easy stuff. And especially if you're in the poetry world, if you're in it for anything else, you know, that's that's a little that's really a little crazy. So that's that's my answer. That's my answer. Live your life. For me, it's you know the writing life. It's about the writing life. A am I writing what I want to write with uh, as much integrity as I can muster? Am I doing the best job that I possibly can? Uh, and I, I do want people to see the work. I do want. I, I do want to interact with people. Yeah, to interact. Absolutely. But that's part of the life. That's yeah. not just about faith. Yeah. The real reason to publish is so that you can be part of a conversation. Yeah, and you know, I always I like to meet people who read my books. It's great. Oh, oh, I read your book. Great. I love that. I love it. Uh, it's a someone? wonderful thing. I, yeah. You know, I have, yesterday, <laughs> yesterday there's a woman I, I met in Telluride at a reading, and I recently published a book about the ski life called Living the Life. Tales from America's Mountains and Ski Towns. Is that available? Uh, and it is available. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, this woman, she was in Crested Butte, where a lot of the stories are set, and she posted, and we're Facebook friends, and she posted a picture of herself in a, on a rainy day in Crested Butte, holding up the, the book in front of the landscape. And I thought, wow. You know, that's, <laughs> like... <laughs> And it, but that's not, you know, I mean, I'm not going to get rich off this book. I mean, the issue is, uh, I think my last, my last royalty check was $400. It's going to keep me in cappuccinos for two weeks. But I'm really, I'm really grateful. I'm incredibly grateful. But, you know, to, to be in that conversation with people who actually have read your book and, and uh, upon whom it's had some kind of a meaningful connection. I mean, well, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound too idealistic. You know, you got to pay the rent. Yeah, we all want to do that. But. You know, you got to be in it to uh, for the conversation. Ultimately, that's what it's all about. That's really the the bottom line. And that's the fabric of literary community. It's the fabric of literature. Uh, and uh, you know, for me, being in a, a venue like this is great. Uh, and I seek out venues like this. And I've I've done readings to like four people actually, thanks to a newspaper uh, typo on the date. Uh, that was very exciting. But but you know, it was like. I, I remember that day, and I just felt like, you know, I'm either going to become one of those whiny, bitchy authors who say, nobody came into me, my book is not getting reviewed. Or I was going to say, you know what? I'm just going to be here and I'm be a human being and have a moment of communion with these other people who are also interested in literature. And that that's totally the fabric. And if, you, if that's what you find, and I think this I'm sort of coalescing a little bit what I'm hearing if you find your satisfaction in that then the rest of the stuff matters less and you don't have to worry about it as much because it's not it's not reaching for the external I think maybe that's one of the you know for me that's been a big key is going back to that that uh, that that bubble am, am I reaching outside of the of the bubble of the self and of, of the the uh, of acting with integrity toward other people with in the literary community? Am, am I getting outside of that, or am I not? What what am I? 
closer to the mic. I thought that was some kind of sign language. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Commercial. Anyway, that, that if you have that community, and that community in, includes readers, it's not really that much different than the community that you build when you are coming up as a writer. It's really not that different. You you meet people, you meet them in a space, ideally, of honesty and integrity, and you continue to know them, and they read your books. Nice. I, I got to follow up on that connection with readers and, and defining success. So I'm in Albuquerque in a reading set up at uh, Bookworks, which is a, a neat independent bookstore. And, and the manager's real nice, and he's got like 20 seats set up, and the time to read comes, and nobody's there. You know, mm. <laughs> Nobody. Wow. Uh, I, I don't feel a lot of connection. And finally a, la- <laughs> finally a lady comes and sits on the front row, and, and uh, so I'm saying, well, I'm not sitting up here. I'll just go sit, sit with her. And and so I sat with – I went down and said, so are, are you here for the reading? And she says, no, my feet hurt. <laughs> <laughs> we connected. <laughs> Did you rub her feet? <laughs> I, think, I think it might be, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, for one of them, he beat my – but and several you others. Did beat him in the, in the Langham, Langham Prize, Prize yeah. Right. Mm. <laughs> Thanks. I like. We had all these questions planned out, and you guys are asking great questions. That's good. I hope. You, how much more time do we have? Does anybody have a watch or those? Yeah, we got. Oh my goodness! Oh well, then well then fire more questions, or or else we have to go back to the prepared list. <laughs> Uh, I don't know, probably, probably not as interesting as what you have. So what do you think the advantages of coming to this later, uh, mm. becoming successful mm-hmm. later? Could there be some advantages? Uh, yes, I definitely feel an advantage. I would not have been... Uh, I, I had a, a close brush uh, in, my, in my 30s. Uh, superstar agent at William Morris. Didn't, couldn't sell the book. Gave up on it, and in a way, it was the best thing that happened to me because I would not have been ready. I would have gotten, I would have become one of those people. Me, 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 me. Uh, I definitely would have become one of those people, uh, and um, not having that happen when it, you know, not having that happen, I think opened the door to a, a way of being as a writer that just had greater integrity, and uh, you know, I, I felt like. I, I just didn't become an asshole. Maybe you know some people might disagree, but uh, I think that <laughs> considering the, the <laughs> considering the kind of asshole I would have become if I'd had success when mm-hmm. I was uh, you know thirty thirty two, then well, yeah, I think it would have been a very different kind of story. So I think there's definitely an advantage. In the case of poetry, it's a little different, <coughs> perhaps. There are poets who go off when they're really young. Rambo, Chatterton, Keats. Keats, I think, arguably became great very early because he knew he was dying. Um, Chatterton did die. Rambo was just a, a kind of savant, and he got gangrene. So who wants that? Uh, but um, who were the three great poets who died of gangrene? Just <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. Is it Sidney? Rambo and Byron, but well. that's just you know you can put that in your pocket for cocktail parties. But the the uh, the uh, I would say to wrap up. Yeah, yeah. Well, that <laughs> that's disgusting. But uh, yeah, they were they were they were young. They were sort of green. But the, at any rate, I think you know there are poets who become well known now because we have this sort of industry now. We have this this fame industry, even in the poetry world. Yeah. And um, you know, it is possible with some talent and some energy to go pretty far too fast. And I remember I'm a musician as well, and I I, I remember some very very great music teachers who I studied with saying, you know, you know, you're playing well, but I don't think you should be put out there yet because you. You're playing well, but it's not the right time. It's just not the right time. And, and you notice in, in, in sports, for example, we understand this very, very well. 
it can really actually damage the development of an artist to achieve too much too too young. <coughs> and people really do get better as they get older. Now, I'm not saying, you know, everybody should wait till they're 40 necessarily. But, um, you know, there aren't too many of us who are careful enough and thoughtful enough and, and um, to, to proceed on our, under our own steam um, with enough discipline and foresight to see when it's appropriate to publish what. And um, while I may have published things that I'm not as happy with about others, I certainly can ascribe that to youthful indiscretion at this point. Uh, and I, you know, I was, I was always going for it. I just, it just took a while to sort of work itself out. But in retrospect, I think it's made me a better, a better, a much better writer uh, for all sorts of reasons. Better networks, better support, better editing, a little bit more judicious, um, better sense of what works. And, um, you know, I, I, I was very impatient when I was young, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm okay with it. I think it, I think it worked out. It probably worked out a lot better. I, uh, I've read a lot more lousy 25-year-old writers than I've read great 25-year-old writers. Um, and I would have been on the lousy side. I, I, I was. I didn't know how to write at 25, and I didn't have a worldview that I think would appeal to any kind of a readership at 25. So it's not really a question of you know, waiting to be a late bloomer. It's a question of waiting to be... Uh, to have the craft developed and and it takes some maturation and there are some exceptions there are some very mature young writers but um, I don't see many of them to be honest Hmm. with you Hmm. most of you are old enough to remember the ads we will sell no wine before it's time (laughs) and I think that that applies to uh, to your work as well uh, if it, if it's not ready, it's not ready, and if you're not ready, then you're not ready, and you just you have to keep on working at it uh, until you are ready and it is ready, and there there is uh, you know there's nothing you can do about that that process, and if you, I think if you uh, if you complain about it, then it just gets worse, it gets it gets unbearable, and the people who get co- who complain about it and get um, uh, get frustrated are the ones who quit. And in terms of you know establishing your circle of friends and your community, uh, if you find that your circle of friends and community include a lot of people who are who are bitching about how they're not getting the success that they want, I would suggest that this is perhaps an unhealthy way to go. And you know you don't have to hang around with those people, <laughs> and you don't have to be that kind of people for for others as well. I've had poems that I worked on for twenty years before I published them. There's nothing wrong with that. Do you want to read this poem? I, I actually, oh, yeah, about yeah. two years ago, uh, about two years ago, before this panel was even a, the dream of a concept, I wrote a poem called L- Dear Late Bloomer, which is about a, it's about a plant that's described in here, the um, century plant. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's, it was all, I was also thinking about this in my own life, of course, although I never mention it as such. But in the context of this conversation, perhaps it'll make sense. It's only about a page page in a couple of lines and um, it's called Dear Late Bloomer and um, the place where it's set is in the, the township of Gothic up in near Crested Butte which is the home of the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab which is uh, probably the preeminent high alpine flora and fauna research station in the world at about 9200 feet uh, underneath Gothic Mountain um, former, former mining town now basically a Scientific research station. I have to change my glasses because I'm a late bloomer. <laughs> I can't believe I have to do this. You know, when I was a kid, I'd watch adults do this and go, what the hell is wrong with them? <laughs> Dear late bloomer, no doubt that's what fools would call you in some schools, to which I will respond that on my bike rides in the high alpine this summer, stumbling up the dusty ruts of single track, sweat running under my helmet, flies famished and frantic, flying into ears, eyes, nose, and mouth. I have seen you in groves, too rich, likely ever to be seen again in this short life, given that each one of you only bursts up into your six-foot rich, green, juicy stalk with hundreds of small white blossoms once every 20 to 80 years. 
and this the biggest year in more than 30. And that what I would conclude from this is that you are not a late bloomer. You are a bloomer who blooms when the blooming needs to be done. Triggered by obscure matrices of fact, such as a wait, a wet late July three years ago, which presumably sets you, if not thinking, then drinking until, oh, magnificent monument plant, splendid monocarpic century celebration gentian, Frazera speciosa, genus for John Fraser of Kew Gardens fame, speciosa because so imposingly beautiful in your reproductive frenzy and blooming late only for those whose schedules would arrogantly seek to trump abundance. You build your green tender tower studded with 600 seductions and then take your chances scattering 30,000 proposals for the next generation. Also to wait, to wait patiently, most patient of flowers, family, Gentianachiae, all named for that ancient Illyrian king who first discovered how they might serve as antidote to poison or diluter of wounds. In this case, waiting, waiting for water or light and enabling us to heal what injury. And now, despite the carnivorous flies, I stand among you in the fog, not long after dawn, a few strips of dirty snow high above us on the lacolith of Gothic Mountain. A thousand of you and your succulences proclaiming fertility and vitality in the green faculty of summer's blunt, bursting apex, the valley swelling with foliage and verdure, overgrown with undergrowth, until it seems it might make the mountains and sky as drunk as the bees. And along with the chipmunk munching a grass stalk, the marmots stuffing themselves towards autumn, the bears of July so sated they avoid foraging in town, I sense your function and desire as you punctuate this carpet I rejoice with the exclamation points of your fecundity, sweat pouring from me into the air at 10,000 feet, calling quickly forth when I stop that swarm of small black flies who attack me like paparazzi going after a juicy starlet on probation. And I say to you, for I will say it, though it almost seems surplus, superfluous, extra extraneous, a redundant, unnecessary tangent, Dear late bloomer who is not late, who has simply been waiting until the time was right. Now, now is that time. Now is the time to aspire to kiss the sky. Now I have the answer to my question. Oh, splendid bud, unfurling stalk, leaf and flower, pistol, stamen, I find myself again by simply calling out to you to do what you already do, have done, will do forever. Bloom. <laughs> Be a late bloomer. Be a century plant. Be a gentian. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.